2: Hello, welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wizencroft, and it's the morning after a glorious moment. Football fans trickled into stadia once again as we took a small step towards normality in football. Uh, Olivier Giroud reminded us why he's the best squad player of all time. We won't mention Manchester United, but you can go back to episode one of this season for our views on them. And new entry rules for young players after Brexit. Is this going to be good or bad news for English football? To help me discuss it. All Tom Roddy Gregor Robertson, and Alison Rudd. How are you doing, guys?
3: Hi Hugh. Hi Hugh. Nice to see you again, Hugh.
2: Yes, nice to see you again, Tom. We bumped into each other at last night at Adams Park, Wickham. In person. Exactly. In person. <laughs> we didn't get too close, but Wickham against Stoke City. Um, the big one, let's call it that this week. Um there were a thousand fans there. It's a bit of a pilot. We can want to have 2000 fans back. but they, they, t- they took it easy. It was the first day back after lockdown and the first day that football fans could return uh, to grounds up and down the country, not just at Wickham, but at Charlton, Luton, Shrewsbury, Cambridge, and Carlisle, the return of fans after a full 266 days. Uh, 10 Premier League clubs are going to be able to welcome fans in the next 10 days as well. Um, You know, it feels like we're getting some way back towards a feeling of normality just by having fans there. And Tom, it, it did change the atmosphere totally as well.
3: Completely, yeah. I mean, it, it totally surpassed expectation for me. Really, I was I was a little bit sceptical at first because you, you sort of Adams Park is along at the end of an industrial estate, and it kind of felt like a car boot sale at first because you had the cars filing in and parking up on the Chiltern Hills and people sort of milling around because they'd arrived on their own, um, but. It, It was, it was once Gareth Ainsworth kind of came out and did a lap of the pitch and the fans started to get going then. It it felt like a sense of normality and there was, there was only a thousand fans there, which I think was the, 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 concern for me was that it just wouldn't feel like much but I I don't know what you you thought Hugh but it felt like a lot more to me
2: it did they spread them out across three sides of the ground the terrace end is is far smaller at one end of the ground behind the goals so they didn't have fans in there. there there aren't seats in there either so the fact that three sort of the main stand the Frank Adams stand big stand and the stand where the press were on the other side, were were, were, because the fans were spread out, it felt like the stadium was pretty full. It certainly didn't look like to the eye that there were a 1,000 in a a 9,500-seater stadium. So, yeah, in that regard, I think it was great. And they did make a noise, and they were the same. I think that's the thing that made it for me. Fans behaved in many ways the same. You know, what they were shouting out onto the pitch, what they were saying to the players and the referee... You know, It wasn't a sense of, oh, we're so delighted to be back in a football ground that we're really going to behave ourselves and say loads of nice things and we don't want to put any pressure on the referee. We don't want to put any pressure on our striker after he misses a chance or their striker before he takes a shot or the goalkeeper before he takes a kick. No, no, no. We'll say exactly the same things and we'll make it quite evident that we're here and we'll make a noise. That's what football's about in this country, I think, in many ways, especially the match day experience. So it was great that Wickham's fans provided that and made a great noise after 266 days not just fans at Adams Park but also at Luton uh, Shrewsbury Cambridge Carlisle and Charlton last night uh, were able to have fans back through the doors we actually caught up with some of the fans who were able to go and see Charlton's defeat to MK Dons at the Valley here's what they felt about the experience i just the most Charlton thing ever wasn't it that's exactly what I expected all the stuff waiting for so long can't wait to get here all the excitement what have you we Lose 1 0, and to be fair, Milton Keynes were a better side, so not much you can do about that. That's football, is it? That's what happens at football. And uh, we we'll go, you know, go home, think about it, and hopefully, we're in the ballot and we come next time because why wouldn't we want to do this? Would, would I do it again tomorrow? I'd think about it, but yeah, of course I would. Yeah, I'd love to. I'm really pleased to be back. And let's just, uh, let's see what next week brings. Thanks to Michael Clark of The Times for that audio there in the Valley last night. Um, Enjoying the experience, I think maybe not the result. Uh, Fans have been told as well that they can't touch the ball if it comes near them. Good luck to those sitting behind the goal, of course. Uh, They can't approach players for selfies or autographs. They've got to wear masks into the stadium and to their seats. Singing, though, is allowed But not advised, of course. Uh, Alison, I'll ask you, what what are your feelings around it? Because there are some people who said it is too soon, you know, given what we're seeing outside of sport, um, people just about getting back to normal life. You know, shops aren't open in certain parts of the country. Not everyone can can go back to their place of work. To see football fans into a ground felt like an odd feeling for some.
0: Yeah, but... (laughs) Football isn't like a shop, is it? (laughs) I mean, shops have not had these very detailed protocols um, that that came in with Project Restart. I mean, I've said all the way through and when I've been to matches that I felt far safer at a football ground than I have in my local Marks and Spencer, for example. It's, It's different and they're wide open spaces, football grounds. My, I live on the river, and if you walk along the towpath and it happens to be sunny, it's you are you cannot but touch people. So you sort of feel like you can't even go for a walk when it's a nice day because everyone's jostling. If you organise it properly, it it will be safe. That there's there are there are so many empty seats for you to spread your arms out, not have to touch anybody. It, but I think what it boils down to, there's two things. One is yes, there's there'll be people who feel harumphy they don't like football and they think it's it's spoiling football fans but just just from reading Tom's report in the Times this morning I got an overwhelming sense of the how much um it's helping the mental health of isolated people I think we forget too quickly when we had the first um big lockdown and the nation was in shock and a lot of people um were alone and just you know at their wits end it was football that helped those communities. So you had footballers phoning their old lonely fans just to cheer them up. That went a hell of a long way. You had the club staff cooking food for the locals. And what that means is that football clubs are at the heart of communities. And if you can sort of gear that up ever so slightly by letting a 1,000 or 2,000 fans in, then you're helping more than just the people Get the the lucky golden ticket. You're giving hope to the ones who think they might get the next one. You're letting people who watch the games on TV feel this is real sport, not not some sort of strange hybrid version. And you're just lifting spirits generally. Um, so I I would say to the harumphers, it's not it's not it's not like it's uh, an unfair situation as it might have been for a restaurant, your local restaurant. They're just completely different. And in fact, it was completely illogical to wait so long, given how well football um, got its act together to cope with the pandemic.
2: The Wickham fans last night didn't get the one thing they desired, which was a home goal. They've been told all fans to stay socially distant during goal celebrations. I'm not sure how long that's going to last. Um, Gregor, but it is, it is sort of important that people do stay diligent if they are given the opportunity to go into a ground.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I think all the... I did a piece with the Luton Town uh, Chief Executive Gary Sweet in the build-up to this kind of the return of fans and, and they were describing the people who've been invited as ambassadors. They're, you know, you, you guys have got to... You've got to show the way for everyone else. You've got to, you know do the right thing and, and not mess around with this. And I don't think we can underestimate uh, how much work has gone into this too. It's not just like, you know, uh, uh, the, the contrast between shops being shut and 2,000 fans. It was actually, although the government said you could be 2,000 fans, they still had to go through, jump through so many loops to to be allowed those, those, uh, have any fans back? You know, Luton, for example, could have had two thousand by the, the tier system, the government guideline, but they only had 1, a thousand for a because it was a test event. And yeah, you know, I spoke to they. They hired somebody, something called an automation and technology manager. Luton did, who models where place, where people come from. So they even the thousand people they invited, they made sure that they came from different postcodes. So that they weren't all traveling from the same place or using the same public transport and things. There's a lot of detail going into this and a lot of thought, um, and I think you know as we say, it's the first step, and hopefully, um, hopefully, we'll see more and more fans, and we might even have some semblance of normality by the end of the season.
0: We just cannot fail to mention, um, give a shout out to Lee Bowyer who said the fans who went to the Valley were miserable and quiet. I mean, that idea, you, couldn't, you, you couldn't, you couldn't make that up could you (laughs) everyone's painted this as as fairy tale stuff and only only people who really love their club will turn up and um at Charlton they turned up and said you're rubbish
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was listening to the radio on the way home from Adams Park last night and a Charlton fan did call up and say um you know he was on the phone actually to talk about um to, to talk about the experience of being back at the ground, but they did ask him a question on the result and, and what had happened towards the end of the game. And he said, I'd already left. And they said, what do you mean? And he said, well, we were you, playing so badly. He said, it's the worst performance I've seen in 11 years. And they said, you haven't watched the game for eight months. And he said, it doesn't matter. And they said, to be honest, that's the great thing. Normality is definitely coming back if fans are walking out early, even though they haven't seen a game for that long as well. So there you go. Um, 40 weeks, four days, I think. Um, fans outside of grounds and they are back. Um, Let's talk about some of the other football action this week. It wasn't just uh, in the EFL, the Champions League as well. It's a European week. We saw a fantastic performance from Olivier Giroud, the Frenchman up front for Chelsea. He's pretty much their third choice forward at the moment. He scored all four goals, a perfect hat-trick. He got himself a penalty as the uh, icing on the cake as well in their win over Sevilla. At 34 years old, he's the oldest player to score a European Cup hat-trick since Ferenc Puskas for Real Madrid in September 1965. So he's amongst great, great company. He's an elegant, strong forward. We know he's got finesse. He's got poise in front of goal. Maybe he doesn't have the speed he had in his younger years. But he seems so comfortable being a bit part player at Chelsea, which is strange for all of us because his talents are so obvious. Alison, there's part of me that thinks this is quite a lovely thing, though.
0: Uh, I would dispute that he's happy being a bit part player. I have covered a lot. I I sometimes feel like I'm an Olivier Giroud reporter. I've sort of been there for for most of his big moments. I I was um, starting with his last game for Arsenal, which was against Swansea. And at that point, Arsene Wenger, it was really emotional. It felt very strange. And it also felt deeply illogical. that All the fans loved him it was clear that Wenger loved him and that Giroud would have liked to have stayed, but they just couldn't sort of guarantee that he would be an, a non-bit part player. So he, he left and uh, Chelsea and oh, rewind also his, I was, I, I did, I covered a lot of France at uh, the Russia world cup and saw how, well, I just saw how they would not have won the world cup, but for Olivier Giroud, I mean, that is one hell of a accolade, isn't it? And then, with Chelsea, I did a lot of Chelsea in Europe and it seemed to be, oh, if it's Europa League, oh, we'll, let, we'll let Olivier play. And he, you know, he ended up being their top scorer when they, in the competition, when they won the Europa League. Um, but it still didn't translate into him getting enough time uh, as sort of like a first team first team player for, for, for the club. And, and when he was put up by uh, the club for the media, we would always ask him, you know, are you thinking of leaving? Um what, what will it take to make you stay? do you Are you happy being a sub and he he always said, "I am deeply unhappy about being a substitute, and I hope that by working hard by continuing to put the team first by showing what I've got on the pitch and in training, I will become a first choice player and that hasn't actually happened, so I don't think he's happy being it. I think what he is is probably the consummate professional in that he doesn't when he's out there he does not sulk when he has to come off the bench he doesn't sort of lounge around. And when he starts, he can have the sort of impact that he did against Sevilla. I mean, he's 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 phenomenal, and he does he does everything. So he's a beautiful finisher, but he's also can be incredibly unselfish as well, like he is for France. And um, last last night, you could see once he was sort of thinking, I'm, "I'm in the zone here." He was also also not just trying to score loads and loads of goals. He was thinking about. Um, the movement of other players and trying to set things up and set other moves in motion. So he's a bit of a God really. And I have, I I mean, I don't know what, I don't know. I don't know what Frank's going to do about it, but in a way, um, Olivier Joux is his own worst enemy because he says one thing and he does another.
2: I, I think, for a number of reasons, Olivier Giroud's getting better with age. But I'm not sure you can be overjoyed about being in that position, unless I think it's you're 34 years old, you enjoy living in London. Um, he's had the opportunity to move before. I think it was Tottenham Hotspur, and I think for for a number of reasons, it didn't it didn't happen. But it would have been another London club, and it probably would have been another backup role. Um, he, you know, he's a player who I'm sure could contribute at clubs all over Europe still at 34 years old. Um, but but I also think if he played more regularly, we might not see him play as well because at that age, you know, it's a different stress on you to play two or three games a week. So I, I don't know. I, look, it's great to see him in full flow when he's at it. And I wonder, I think when I look at Tammy Abraham, for example, and I, I see the game, the last weekend a game that, that Chelsea played against Spurs, um, just that the positions that Tammy Abraham got himself into and you do think if Giroud was in the box particularly when crosses were coming in and Abraham was throwing himself to try and get on the end of them that Giroud would have made at least one of those count but maybe it's the other factors of the game that, that, that Frank Lampard thinks Tammy Abraham is going to be more relevant for Greg should he start more often Giroud?
4: No I, I, I have a slightly different view look I think Giroud is a great player really good like brilliant, as I say brilliant professional um, he's won the World Cup. I, I, that still baffles me somehow because I don't. I don't think he's in the in the elite bracket of strikers personally. And I think the reason he's there is a reason why he's always the bit part player. You know, there was a few years at Arsenal he wasn't, but even when he was at Arsenal and he was leading the line on a regular basis, the truth is they were looking for for an upgrade, so he could so he could be back to being on the bench. He's never the striker that a club. Thinks he's our our number nine, our the guy who's leading the line for us. He n- he never has been in the Premier League, really. So I, I think I think he's got he's, he's there are players that have this kind of niche that have that their careers go down this path. They they are you know they're an excellent player to be able to call upon to either, to start a, f- a few games to bring on. You've got a good you know goals per minute ratio, um, but he's a sub. At that level, that elite bracket of clubs, he's a sub.
2: Is and he better than Tammy Abraham?
4: I think, you know, that's a hard thing to tell at this moment in time that Tammy Abraham's very young. And I, I think, with, you know, if you look at talking about those incidents against, uh, against Spurs, you know, Tammy Abraham is, I'd say, one of his... his not his strongest part of his game is is in the air. And a lot of those balls were whipped in. And you're right, his timing's not great. Giroud's very good in the air. But let's also remember that he came on and fluffed a golden opportunity to win the game for them. So, he's, you know, everything's coloured by the fact that he's just scored four goals. And with this, there's also a reason why this conversation comes up at least once a year. He, you know, last season, I think he played, he made five sub appearances until February in the Premier League. You know, he... There's a reason why that happened, and there's a reason why the year before he started seven games in the Premier League. He's not a player in that top bracket of clubs in England who leads the line. He might, you know, he might come in and have a good run of form. Um, he's someone who, as Alison said, they called co- they they leaned upon him in the in the Europa League heavily. But these teams play in the Europa League. They play the reserves until the quarterfinal. Yeah, he scored a lot of goals and he, he did very did very well. So. Look, uh, there are a lot of things. I even think his record for France needs a bit more scrutiny. He, half of the goals were scored in friendlies. Um, he scored <laughs> one, one goal in two World you Cups. Be, you, you won't be he saying that one about goal Cristiano Ronaldo, will you? I don't, I, look, he, he no, undoubtedly in the World Cup, he was a huge part of France's victory. He stretched the play. He made space for Mbappe. He linked up brilliantly. But his record for France in tournaments isn't isn't, overwhelming so again I'll come back last season I said something daft about him and said that he's you know in another life he could could have been a championship striker what I meant by that is he could easily have played for clubs a rung or two down the ladder and been a regular and being a starter and being the player who leads the line for them but he's not been a player to do that for Chelsea or really consistently for Arsenal Bit, bit I harsh, think I think I think
0: Gregor I think Gregor has been cuckolded by a man called Olivier at some point in his life. <laughs> this is ridiculous. He, Giroud, I, I mean, you say his record for France needs to be examined. He didn't score a goal in the World Cup, and yet, and yet, was the most important player. Do you not value selflessness? Are he, what France yeah, needed, they had young, young, fast players. They had young, fast players, and they needed someone who could not be the sort of old-fashioned uh, target man, but someone who who could hold the ball up with intelligence and in a split second release the perfectly weighted pass knowing how fast his teammates were. And I think that is why he has more value to Frank Lampard than Frank Lampard is giving him because he also has young players who need that intelligent brain to knit it together at the front.
4: That's fine if you have Gillian Bap and, and Griezmann supporting you, but not every team has that. So... You need to be, if you're a number nine, you need to score goals and you need to lead the line and you need to be a killer in the box. And I don't think he's been that over his career.
2: He's the Roberto Firmino of France in many ways. (laughs) But listen, both of them have been winning trophies, so they must be doing something right. Yeah, Um, uh, Tom, I just wanted to talk about the Chelsea squad, generally speaking, because last night Frank Lampard made nine changes and inflicted Sevilla's biggest home defeat in Europe in a hundred games. Aspilicueta, Christensen, Rudiger, Emerson, Jorginho, Havertz, Pulisic, uh, hudson Adoy, and of course Giroud, uh, Gilmore and Tamori amongst the subs. I mean, they showed last night... That there is some depth there at Chelsea, and it could take them all the way, possibly in the Premier League, maybe even in Europe too. What do you make of their chances?
3: Yeah, I mean, I actually think it connects with um, with Giroud in a way, in that it's a it's part of modern football in in which you don't need to be um, a number a first-pick striker. We, We don't necessarily have that anymore. And in this season of all seasons, I mean, it feels like Giroud's been at Chelsea for about five years, the amount of times we hear stories of him wanting to leave because of not being the first choice. But... Um, this season, with with a, Euro, with a Europe every single week and a Premier League game every week, there need, there's going to be that rotation. And I partly agree with Gregor. I, can't, I couldn't really see a team um, winning the Premier League title with with Giroud up front as the main striker. But then at the same time, he. I think even before last night, you sort of talk about the, the, those four goals colouring the conversation but before last night he had a goal every 56 minutes this season and uh, i think you look back and he's he's one of those strikers that complements other players and eden hazard always preferred to play with him than anyone else at chelsea but I think he represents the modern game in a way, and and I think this season is is he'll get more opportunities because there's going to be so much rotation, and it's almost the perfect storm for Chelsea because their big their big problem, Frank Lampard's big problem in the summer was not offloading players. He got what was it six or seven major major signings in, but didn't offload enough. So he had this huge squad. I mean, Kai Havertz has has. has Not really figured all that much. Christian Pulisic hasn't figured that that much because of injuries. Um, But because of this year, I think that there is going to be that rotation and players are going to be told, I don't need you this week, but I need you next week. And, and Frank Lampard was, you know, he he knew that was how Mourinho used to work. So it, it makes them all feel involved. And, and I think this is almost the perfect storm for them this year. Uh,
2: Gregor, what do you make of, of the way that the squad plays? I think Julian Lopetegui said uh, in the build-up to the game between his side, Sevilla and Chelsea, that Chelsea are the best attacking side in England, which is a, a massive uh, compliment to them. Do you think it's true?
4: I think... The kind of for the the sheer volume of options that they have up front, um, it's just about finding. You know, I, I, Tom's actually right though. I, I was just going to say it's about finding the right kind of formula, but there's not really such a thing just now, or, or it's particularly in this season, because there are so many games, and you're going to try different, you know, different trios, and it could be that Giroud is the player to complement Werner and Havertz. Behind them, it could be that you know ZH is instead is, is that player or it, Giroud, Giroud will could could bring the best out of some of those players, but at the same time, I, I just get the feeling that he's gonna he's not going to be the player that he he really ultimately wants to have in his front three. So, our um, Chelsea one one of the best attacking uh, Liverpool are still the best attacking team in the country, undoubtedly, but Chelsea are 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 are, uh, are catching them up.
2: I was really hoping you were going to say it was Chelsea just to see Alison's reaction Sam. <laughs> I, I teed it up and you just didn't go along with it um, look, it's, it's interesting what you, you say you can't about,
0: uh, fight the truth
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's so obvious yeah um you know, it's interesting what you say about Olivier Giroud and, and maybe getting the best out of some of those other players. I, I, I don't think he would massively work with Timo Werner, who likes to sort of get into those central areas, even though, even if he's playing out wide, you know, when he attacks the box, he very much attacks centrally. But, um, you know, for the other players, it seems to be sort of satellite number 10 and wingers. He might be great to, to, to play with. And I think we, he, he sort of showed that last night. Um, they face Leeds at the weekend, which is a, a fixture that I'm sure fans of both clubs will be looking forward to. And I wonder whether you experiment with Olivier Giroud up front with the players that we would have seen normally starting and, and Tammy Abraham is dropped. You'd expect that after four goals, wouldn't you, Alison?
0: Yes, you would normally. Um, I take on board everything Tom, Tom and Gregor have said about mainly it seems to be his age, really. I mean, I, I wouldn't. I'm not arguing that he has to start every single game in a very congested season, that would be stupid. I just think he should be, uh, I just feel he's slightly underappreciated, to be honest. I think the emphasis at Chelsea is very much on youth and I think he's sort of, uh, it's like, he just feels like the weirdo in the corner sometimes. He just doesn't fit the model. But he doesn't he's but in the same way as I've argued also that I think Matteo Kovacic is crucial to the team because although he's much younger, he has a wise head and plays that sensible, intelligent role in midfield, which often knits together the best Chelsea performances we've seen this season. I think I think against Leeds, I, I would like to see Frank be a I would like to see Frank reward, as long as he's okay in training and he's not, um, you know, completely shattered by the experience. I would like to see him reward. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to see him. (laughs) I'd like to see him reward reward what he achieved. I mean, it is an achievement. It's a wonderful thing. I mean, I, I, I want to know what the new term is. So you get a perfect hat trick. Not only do you then score a penalty, but you win. But you win the penalty, which sort of makes it perfection times two doesn't it it's not even like he converted someone else's someone else's you know run and and tackle and and winning he, he did everything it was like a one a complete one man show it's fantastic so um so I suppose really you, but you know that's why people like Frank Lampard and managers, and I'm not. I'd probably be far too romantic about it. And Frank Lampard has to think, has to think. Well, no, this is about the fact we are now facing a Leeds team that uh, they play murder ball every day in training, and we have to be able to. And probably he's thinking the last player I want on the pitch is someone in their mid thirties because Leeds are so blooming fit. They do not stop running. They are as at it in the 90th minute as they are in the first so why on earth would I want to start somebody who's um not not at their physical peak in terms of pace and power maybe but I think he should certainly feature he should certainly feature and you know he is really popular amongst the Chelsea fans the fans want it and there are going to be fans there so you know we talked about the beauty of the taste of normality at the start of this. Let's keep. It. Let's, let's let the manager give back to the fans. Give give them what they
2: want. <laughs> um, we shall see who Frank Lampard uh, goes for at the weekend. But in a way, it's it's a perfect blend for Frank Lampard because n- no player has really stood up to to be particularly in the attacking sense for Chelsea. The player that's going to be top goal scorer this season in the league or, or be in the, the PFA team of the year. But what he does seem to have is, you know, every game someone who's going to perform. You know, it doesn't seem to be consistently one player. But if Verner's not a yet completely settled in the Premier League or Kai Havertz hasn't, then maybe a Hudson Adoy or a Giroud, um, a Tammy Abraham who, who doesn't really seem to be someone that's going to get that huge weight of goals that maybe you'd want a, a striker at a team like Chelsea to be getting but he can chip in, then it seems like they'll consistently, you know, keep putting in results. And that's what you need to do. If you're going to build a massive season, we'll see if they can keep it going. Uh, we will keep it going here. We're building, I think a massive season ourselves on the game podcast. If you like us, give us a five star review, uh, like us on Apple podcast or whichever podcast subscriber you use, make sure you subscribe. You won't miss the next episode. You can go online and subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and you will get one month free at the moment as well. So search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game for more of us.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
2: VoiceOver on settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
2: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: You're listening to The Game Podcast. Hugh Wilson, Croft, Tom Roddy, Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd with you this Thursday morning and some interesting news uh, for us to discuss this week, uh, the Football Association announcing what's been described as a radical post Brexit shakeup. Uh, it's been signed up to by the EFL and the Premier League, of course, all to do with transfers, foreign transfers to be exact. There will be a points based system. We've heard that a lot from December the 31st. Uh, points will be awarded for senior and youth international appearances club appearances and the pedigree of the selling club the big rule though clubs will not be able to sign overseas players under the age of 18 signing of 18 to 21 year olds will be limited to 3 in January and a total of 6 per season the Premier League Chief Executive Richard Masters says the system means that Brexit should not harm the success of the Premier League or the prospect of England's teams Um, I think this is a bit of a ruse because I know that there was a a proposed increase to the quota. The number of players, homegrown players in squads in the Premier League was spoken about as an option. That clearly seems like it's not going to be the thing taken up. But the ability to, to, sorry, rather the non-ability to sign players before the age of 18. uh, Alison, I'll start with you. On the surface of it seems like it will be really good for young English players. And yet I'm still suspicious.
0: I don't blame you. Um, well, first of all, I have to say I hate all this. I hate all. I hate restrictions. I hate quota systems. I hate Brexit. Okay, let's get that on the table. Um, but with, it's it's going to happen. Um, I hope something good could could come of it. For example, there are far too many young players in the academies at the moment. Which I, I mean, it's going to sound brutal, but I think it's true. The clubs have n- no intention of using them letting them come through to the first team they are using them as fodder if you like to make sure that the, the one or two that they can make money from are squeezed out of the top having played decent football and mingling with with talented players uh, there, there are far too many young young players in the country uh between the ages of uh 16 and 18 simply wandering around wondering what they did with their youth and why they haven't got any qualifications worth anything. If it can change that sense of aimlessness in um, aspiring footballers' lives, so that by virtue of the fact that clubs take their homegrown players and academies more seriously, that's great. That probably won't happen. Um, I wonder what the impact will be on clubs further down the pyramid. Will they have their own... Uh, promising players just hoovered up, so that they're left. They're they're left with what? I mean, uh, they can't anyway. really afford. Yeah, but it, what, the, what, how can they respond? They, they've got less money than they had before. So it's not like they can uh, start creating their own uh, parallel academy structures. And un, under Brexit, they're not allowed to go abroad for the cheap overseas options that they would have been able to before because they won't. They won't. They won't be allowed under the point system in because there'll, there'll be no virtually you know, inverted commas. There'll be nobodies. So that I don't, I don't I think the trickle down effect, whilst you might get a bit of income. But, you know, it's about supply and demand. I don't know. I I, I, I am worried about what it'll mean for, for for small. I mean, Gregor, you know how they operate better than me. Do you, do you think they're welcoming this as an opportunity or are they fearful about what it means to, to what happens to the talent they are currently on, on a budget, trying to
4: grow. I mean, the, the first thing I would say is that I, I, I've always been slightly uncomfortable with the sheer volume of players that that certain clubs in the Premier League, particular, uh, accumulate, and a lot of them are from overseas. And that's down to money. They can offer them more money, so um, they're not offering them more opportunity. They're offering them a place in a, in their farm, essentially, and they and they'll have loan opportunities, and and uh, you know, one or two might make it through to the first team, but very few do. Um, uh, you know, th- personally, I, you know, there's a. But this kind of ties into a bit of a broader picture, and it's just the sheer volume of players that clubs are allowed to accumulate, and I think that's what should be limited. Actually, there's not. You know, uh, I understand that this is this is a very specific sort of issue, um, but I think the sheer volume of players that clubs are are accumulating is is a bigger one. Um, so, if this has plays any part in in that being reduced, then I think that's. That's no bad thing. Um, will players will that put a greater value on English players? Perhaps, but it might give them more opportunities. I think it's really complex because, as as we were discussing beforehand, there could be there are always loopholes that clubs will try to find, and there's more and more clubs that are trying to, you know, have sister sister clubs in other parts of Europe or, or other around the world and if they can sign players and, and for those clubs and then per- perhaps transfer them when they're older <laughs> they're, some Premier League clubs are becoming so big and vast in scale that their, their operation and their sort of player recruitment uh, operation is enormous I don't think this alone is going to be able to affect that
2: uh, Tom, what's your reaction to it? Because, I, I, you know, there's a part of me that thinks there'll be many ways of getting around it. Clubs will. And we've already seen stories about um, Premier League clubs wanting to buy teams in Holland or Belgium so that they can sign them there first and then get them over to England at the age of, of 21. But there's a part of me, and I'm not really... You know, someone that would, you know, I wouldn't hang an England flag outside my house, let's call it that. But the reality of the situation is there's part of me that says it's English football, it's fans money, mainly from England in terms of people who go on a match day, for example. It's it's kids from the local area that will be able to be in the academy and improve their football. And it's a huge resource, you know, academies at Premier League clubs. I'd rather see that. Go into players who could possibly play for England than ones that would be playing for Brazil or Argentina or Cameroon or whoever. Um, and, and in that regard, I think it's positive news. And like I say, I'm still a little bit suspicious that there will be massive loopholes. But on the face of it, why would I want? And this is a, th- a point that I made yesterday. I think this isn't really about top players because it, it seems like, given you know, sort of the requirements here, top players will probably be able to sign regardless of their, their age group. Really, in terms of Um, 18 and above you know if you've played a lot of caps for Brazil's under 20s you're not going to have an issue it seems Uh, even if you're 18 years old you you should be able to sign for a Premier League club Um, but I think there were a lot of mediocre players who come over from various parts of the world who were touted at the age of 14 by the age of 17 or 18, they're on a five-year deal, they've got a place in an academy and they're not going to make it. And it's evident they're not going to make it. They're either loaned out um, back to their home country or to to another club in Europe. And it's just evident that we've spent three or four years on a player from another country who wasn't
3: going to make it. At
2: least if it's an English player, they might stay in, in the EFL. Sure.
3: I mean, I, I saw the, the joint statement that was released and and one of the things that stood out to me was the England teams that was referenced. And there was this idea in there, the word used was safeguarding it. Um, uh, and it kind of stood out to me because I was thinking it's not, it's not like 10 years ago, England won a World Cup or got particularly close. And now it's all slipped away and the, the kind of pool of talent has been reduced massively. It's it's the total opposite. I mean, we've never had such kind of quality in in or options. Um, I mean, I was at the under twenty ones last month, and you got Callum hudson Adoy playing it, dipping down into the under twenty ones because he can't get into the first team. You got Gareth Southgate looking at next summer, trying to work out how he's going to get Rashford, um, Sterling, and Jadon Sancho and Harry Kane into a into an attacking lineup with Mason Greenwood coming through. There's so many players coming through. So it's, it's, to me, it's the total opposite. And I think the, the point space system, um, it seems very bizarre to me because I don't really understand how the, the club you're at can impact whether you can come over here and play i mean would would erling Haaland when he was 17 and uh, in in playing in in norway um for mold would, would he not be able to come here because of that club whereas a, a worse off player at say bayern munich be able to come over it, it doesn't make any any sense to me
2: a few big names that probably wouldn't have been in the premier league at the stage they came into the premier league uh, hector Bellerin from uh, barcelona to arsenal paul pogba at 16 i think left le to come to Manchester United. Eric Garcia at Manchester City from Barcelona as well. Um, some others, Seth Vanderberg Berg at Liverpool who came from uh, PC's Zvola, I think that's pronounced. Uh, and so many others over the years, you know, Federico Makeda, uh, Nicholas Anelka, a massive one. Fabregas, Barcelona to Arsenal. Um, you know, it will change the ability to get some of the, the top young stars. Unless... Oh, well, yeah, on the cheap.
4: That's the reality of it. Arsenal, Arsenal were really probably one of the first that dipped into that found this this market and sort of took players. You know, Fabregas came at what was he, fifteen or sixteen from Barcelona. They got him on the cheap, and then they sold him to Barcelona. So, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it works both ways. Now English players are going over to Germany to try and forge a career, and and you know, because they see opportunity there. So, I. I I just I feel that the likelihood is mo- most of the biggest English clubs who have been taking advantage of this and have such vast scouting networks and are signing players at young ages like this will find a loophole and it probably will mean buying a club or if they don't already own one in Europe and you know transferring them when they want them
2: there is another part of this I I think it stops um what we've seen in the past, which were sort of families moving to this country, claiming that uh, they, they, you know, the parents were just moving for a job. It had nothing to do with the fact that they had an absolute, brilliantly uh, talented wonder kid of a, a son who, um, yeah, we wanted to live two miles down the road from Chelsea's training ground and it had absolutely nothing to do with football. And yet he signed for Chelsea the day we arrived. You know, it I think it will stop that. Um, but also Gregor, um Opportunities for people from Northern Ireland, from Wales, and from Scotland—you know—they they will be seen differently. Youngsters from those countries now,
4: perhaps. Yeah, as I say, I, I still come back to. I just think that the the sheer volume of of players that a, a lot of the top academies have—that's uh, the thing that needs to be tackled head on because the it, it gives the clubs too much too too much power as well. I think, uh, you look at clubs in the championship, um, who are, you know, scrambling to get Premier League loan players. And often seasons can be completely derailed or transformed because of a player. So I take Conor Gallagher, for example, uh, last season, Chelsea Loney was at Charlton, did brilliantly well for the first half of the season. Chelsea saw that they were struggling. Charlton, the bottom half of the table, took him again not not really because he wanted to leave they took him in, in uh, january in january and gave him to swansea and swansea made the playoffs so like they they tra- they kind of they have the power now to transfer uh, and charlton relegated i should add as well so you know they have the power to kind of to make or break a season um and i think the more the the more that, that can be kind of reduced really um the better
2: Uh, We will see if these rules transform English football or the England team for that matter. I think they're doing pretty well at the moment in terms of making uh, really talented youngsters and we'll see if they keep coming through. Uh, The likes of Bakayo Saka at Arsenal. We're going to talk about his team next. Arsenal sitting 14th in the table. They've lost five of their 10 Premier League games, of course, beaten 2-1 by Wolves last weekend. Uh, Mikel Arteta, their manager, says he's not worried about his future. Tom, it's one year since Unai Emery was sacked as Arsenal boss, how much better are Arsenal? How much has changed in your opinion?
3: <laughs> no, nothing, nothing really. I mean, watch it. Well, it, it, there, a lot had changed, but I think talking at this exact moment and and I, I was at the Wolves game on Sunday um, and watching. Mikel Arteta on the touchline, he he had that same sort of vacant expression Emery had at the at the end where it just wasn't working. Um, I mean, it had come it, it seemed like it was it it it, it had come so far, and I mean, this is dramatically the the perspective of Arsenal has has dramatically lurched in just a month because it was it was the beginning of November they were winning at United. First win there since 2006, first win away to a top six side in five years. Everything was, seemed good. Um, and then they didn't score a goal until, in open play until, um, until that Wolves game, which was another defeat. And they, the, that sense of that defensive responsibility, which Arteta had seen, seemed to have sorted out, and totally gone. I mean, he t- he always talks about one brain having one brain. The team moving as one, and and the players think think thought of him as kind of and still think of him as as this guy who it, there's almost this omniscience about him that he knew how the other teams would would move and attack them and and block that. But it's it's totally disappeared. And and he he's very careful in what he says, Arteta, and. On Sunday night, he said that he was worried about Aubameyang, the fact that he's not scoring goals. He's their main goal scorer and he's not scoring goals. Um, And also what I found interesting was it was put to him about his job, his position and whether he was concerned. And he said that when he came into the job, that he always knew he would be sacked or he would leave in some way. Um, But it felt prepared. It felt like something he'd been thinking about now I'm not saying he's on the verge of being sacked or leaving right now um, but it felt like something that was on his mind in some way
2: he'll get a long time I think he's not going to have to worry about his position for Uh, For a period of time, but it's evident they're not playing well. They uh, visit the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium on Sunday, the North London derby. It's going to have 2,000 Spurs fans there as well. Delighted that their side are top of the table at the moment. So it's really not a good one for Arsenal fans if they lose this weekend to see Tottenham Hotspur flying high and their team really in the doldrums at the moment. How worried, Gregor, are you for Arsenal and, and their season? Is this just a poor run of form?
4: I think I think we're seeing a kind of regression to the mean. I think we saw the impact. We saw we saw Arteta's impact. We saw it in their play. We saw it in their their sort of improved defence. We saw it in the FA Cup win. We saw it in the fact that they qualify for Europe. Uh, look, we we saw the improvement, and I think that probably led us to believe that. Well, it led some people to believe that the job was a little bit easier than it actually was, because the players are good enough. It's straightforward. There's been there's been so many years of terrible, terrible recruitment, and yeah, I remember after the Brighton game, I said that half the team Brighton game last season they were awful, and I said that half the team had to be emptied, which is kind of Scottish word for showing the door very swiftly, and. He's done that with Ozil and Gündüz. Essentially, and that was because of discipline, and he had a lot of his kind of early, early work. I think was about discipline. I mean, This team has to be, you know, they have, they have to work hard for the team. There's no, you know, the non-negotiables. He describes them and things like that. So, the, the the worry when you see that when you see that fall away and the sort of life draw, you know, draw out or fall out of that, I personally don't think it's the it's the manager. I think if if they're seeing someone who is who is a disciplined coach and wants is expecting more from them and they're not living up to it then that's cause of the players if they're not living up to it because they think this guy this guy's is asking too much of us then it's still it's still down to the players i know he, these are the players he has now and he's got to get the best from them um you know the not having party in midfield has been a big a big blow for them uh they still are desperate for someone to play. Gabriel looks like a good sign. They still are desperate for someone to play alongside him. Um, and as Tom said, they are not—they are not playing like a coherent team anymore. They're not playing with that one brain that he described it. So, yeah. You know, but I think personally, we're seeing a regression to the mean in these players, and we've seen it so many times over the last few years. So, it, Arteta, Arteta needs time, and he will get time. Where it where it used to be. You know a choice between changing half your team and changing the manager the manager always goes this won't happen this time unless this unless they're like staring down relegation he will be given time to form his to to build his own squad and i think he deserves that personally
2: unless you're manchester united where neither the manager or the players go that's always an option as well <laughs> uh, Alison <laughs> Alison, Unai Emery's Villarreal uh, sitting, uh, I think, fourth in La Uh, Liga at the moment, third in La Liga at the mm. moment, one defeat in 11 games, um, showing what a quality manager Unai Emery is. Um, uh, But does that suggest that there are bigger problems at Arsenal than the management group? I know Gregor says... Um, it's it's the group of players as well, but I wonder if something else goes with being Arsenal boss at the moment. Whether it is the the and the arguments between fans, um, that that's just a massive distraction to to the, the day job.
0: Yes, and yes, and yes. Um, I think Unai Emery came in and would have had to have been just a different different type of personality altogether to 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 to, to cope with the post Wenger era. I think. It, it was just the wrong personality. Forget forget his um, his CV and his sort of technical ability as, as a coach. He needed someone with a hell of a lot of oomph. And he, he didn't have that. And he got completely sidetracked. He allowed the media to sidetrack him as well over the Ozil question. So it became a case of everything that was going well or badly with Arsenal was linked to just one player. And you need to have strength of character as as the manager to say no 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 actually you're, you're all on the wrong track there i'm doing other things here and it didn't quite work for him he got sucked into that really rather ridiculous debate and that was why when um arteta came in he i think i think he isn't naturally an umphy guy he's he's um is cerebral and uh quietly spoken and very measured, Gregor says, and Tom says he chooses his words carefully, but he's 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 got a bit of charisma, and he says he said all the right things, and he, he came in a bit like a deity would, like I've watched I've watched the universe, I have watched Arsenal, and I know because I love them, I know what they need, and I'm going to put it right, and it was very seductive, um, it really was. At the, the fans, media, players, I think everyone thought, ooh, this is what we need. But it's not, there is no there is no there is no magic in football. The the managers that we all love with charisma and so on, if you look at if you look at it really, they've got they've got budgets and they've got players, or they've inherited great academies. And Greg was quite right. He didn't Arteta has not inherited enough for that that sense of i i know what this club needs it is my discipline and my guiding hand i'm i'm the father figure here they just don't have enough for that to to work through i also agree i don't think he's anywhere close to being sacked and i think probably when they have their meetings at the club they love him being in there i'm sure he's he's he, he exudes a sense of omnipotence and, and knowledge that he can get it right one day but they're not a club that spend Big nor spend well, as in with a pattern that makes sense. Uh, it does need an overhaul. And for all the talk of him solving the problem of um, lack of team spirit and dissonant voices in the dressing room and um, fractured uh, fractures amongst the, the the coaching staff and the and the, the players and not everyone working towards the same goal, they, those cracks. Clearly, are still there because when you watch Arsenal lose, they lose with their shoulders slumped. Those in that sense of um, we believe in ourselves and we believe that we, we owe it to the fans. They don't seem to owe it to anybody, and they're often they're often those defeats you've mentioned, um, Hugh, are are against teams that. You know, are playing with more than the sum of their parts and Arsenal rarely, rarely do
2: that these days. Mm-hmm. I agree, I agree. Let's look ahead uh, to the North London derby, maybe tactically as well. Um, before we talk about Arsenal's tactics and Gregor, I'll come to you on this, Spurs are going to have to change their approach from the last couple of games in the Premier League as well. They're going to basically have to turn on the tap on their attack because it's been very defensive in the last couple of games. Um I just wanted to ask you, someone that's played, you know, how easy it is for you to really flick a switch in terms of your approach to a match tactically, you know, because it, it became very obvious that Jose Mourinho wanted to sit in for the last couple of games, try and, and, and nick a goal. He got a couple against Manchester City, didn't get one against Chelsea, but against Arsenal, I'd imagine he wants to go out there and, and win the game comfortably.
4: Yeah, although I wouldn't say that you know that means we're going to see a Buccaneer in Tottenham side. I still think they'll be fairly conservative and, and and probably allow Arsenal to have the ball in in you know comfortable positions and then when it, it almost invite them onto them and then try and hit them on the break. I still, I still think that will be Mourinho's game plan. Obviously, as you say, they're not playing against an opposition with quite the same threat. Um, how easy is it to change that? I think I, I think it's. I think it's relatively easy. I think that you know the players have been, have obviously been well drilled by Mourinho in, in the way that they're playing this season. And there's a, been little kind of interesting tactical switches or little nuances to their play about the midfielders dropping into into fullback positions almost to to kind of allow the fullbacks to to engage with the wide players. And you know there's been some good analysis on that recently. Actually, actually, these, it seems something new that Mourinho's done that's allowed them to have. Uh, Kane and two players staying high up the pitch and not really having that much defensive responsibility. So I think that'll that'll continue to, to be the case. Um, so uh, I, I, look, Tottenham will will go will be slightly more attacking than than they have been in the last two games because they're playing Arsenal. But uh, I still don't expect them to to be playing like Liverpool. <laughs>
3: Tom, he can't he can't go for a, a board draw again, can he? I don't think he needs to. I think what um, what Gregor said is is right about the, the this new kind of system that really works for him and I think Hoyberg is is I think he's he is the Mourinho player on the pitch. He's the Ander Herrera that he had at United, where him and Sissoko drop in and where he would before have his wingers dropping back as these kind of auxiliary fullbacks in a in almost a back 6 if he needed to that that doesn't need to happen because Kane's dropping in so I don't think there's actually going to be a, as much of a dramatic change it just means they can move up the, they they don't need to be quite as conservative um I think he will Feel the need to be more attacking in this game, and and I don't think he'll fear Arsenal as much as he did Chelsea. I think we we all heard what he said after that game, and and um, and knew the, the and knew what what was really going on, um, but. It, because he saw the threats that they had um, with Arsenal, he won't he won't feel that, but he'll recognise it's a North London derby. He'll recognise that this is a, t- a totally different game, and that, that that they need to kind of well totally be at it. But um, I think he'll be confident going into it.
4: It'd be interesting, though, quickly if if you know you said that Canes are doubt. You know how how and we've we've said this already earlier in the season how. Kane getting through a full season particularly a season like this without one injury at least one injury is rare so it will be interesting to see how he would change it if Kane was not available not just in this game but you know, going forward too I'm sure they will have made some plans already for that for that eventuality.
2: And whether Arsenal can handle Tottenham with or without Kane is going to be a big issue. I did suggest earlier this week that they should rest him against Arsenal. They don't need him. You know, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. Um, but to get Arsenal's season started, kick-started, I guess, a win against Tottenham Hotspur away from home in a North London derby, there's no better way really for Mikel Arteta to sort of galvanise the fans once again and his group of players. Does anyone see... Arsenal getting a win this weekend.
0: No, I don't see them getting a win, nor <laughs> no. do I see if they did get a win, it would kick start their season because that's no. what's what's they've had they've had little little ignition points, haven't they? Little sparks throughout Arteta's reign. And we thought this is it, this is the moment, they're gonna kick on from here, and then it all goes a bit flat again. So even if they were to get a freaky, a freaky win, and I think it would be a freaky win in if you just compare the form of the two teams. That's the, that is ultimately the weirdest part about Arsenal is if that if they did win it would not kickstart anything. That's what's wrong with them. There's something wrong with their self belief. I think
4: the thing is they've actually you know Arteta's had a good record against against the biggest sides. So I don't think it would be that you know shell shocking if they <laughs> if they if they did get a win. But I agree with Alison. I don't, you know. I think there's still. I really, we, we've discussed this about Man United too. There's parallels. There's bigger issues at play here. And well, well, we can say there might be differences between the guy in the dugout and whether they, you know, how 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 much trust there is in him and how much trust uh, there should be in him. <laughs> I think that's the only difference. I think there are bigger issues at play in the in these two these two clubs. They've, That have been the case over many, many years, Um, and uh, Arsenal—you're still to be convinced that Arsenal are even on the right path to be, you know, improving the recruitment. And no matter how good or or bad Arteta is as a coach, um, he needs help, and that's not going to come overnight.
2: Tom, you're going to make it a full house. Is this the weekend that Spurs are going to win the league? Is on all the back pages. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm afraid so. I mean, it's I think it's 2014 was the last time Arsenal won at won at Spurs, and Arteta was actually playing that day, um, so he'll he'll know what it's like. But I don't think he'll feel it on uh, on on Sunday.
2: Uh, we shall see. Uh, Allison, go ahead. Do you
0: think Manchester United, in the spirit of Brexit, should sack Solskjaer? Stimps, not nothing, nothing to do with him nothing to do with this Just because his coaching he's nothing to do with performance because under the new system he wouldn't be valid as a as on point entry to be a manager in this country
2: Well, yeah. I mean, look, if he wanted to get the job after December the 31st, I'm sure he wouldn't have the qualifications to do it. You know, he would be barred. So I don't know if he's got residency from when he was playing for Manchester United. But look, if you want another hour on the podcast, I can sum up (laughs)
4: Manchester United if you
2: like. (laughs) To be frank, not very happy with the result. But as I say to everyone, go back to episode one. You'll hear our full, undiluted, just replace whoever they played that week with the word PSG because... Uh, it's the same old story, maybe with Arsenal and Manchester United, as Gregor says, similarities between both. If they lose to West Ham, though, at the weekend. I can guarantee we'll talk Manchester United on Monday. I'm sure we'll talk David Moyes as well and and his chances of a new deal uh, at the London Stadium as well, which, by the way, because fans are back this weekend, has suddenly become one of the best places in the country to watch football. So plenty for us to dissect on Monday. Uh, Thank you to uh, Alison Rudd, Tom Roddy and Gregor Robertson for being with me and to you as well. A reminder, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of the latest news from the footballing world. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game and at the moment you'll get yourself one month free we will see you on Monday
0: as you're listening to me Daisy Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts that's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks,
1: Daisy. There's
0: more to iPhone.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello HelloFresh